Well, good morning. I hope you're a Razorback fan because I'm a little happier today, this season. If you're not, that's insignificant to today. And it really is insignificant to the matters of life. And so much of what we do and occupy our times with is really insignificant when you look at it on an eternal basis. We're, we're, a, we're a community of covenants at Grace Point. And for some people that doesn't make sense. So what does a covenant mean and, and all that? But we have covenants throughout a number of places in our church. One, uh, to be in leadership in our church, to be a trustee, there's a certain covenant that you sign in agreement of confidentiality, of honoring God in, as an example in stewardship and giving and tithing and, and so many other things that, uh, that make that, uh, that element up. We, we talk about uh, as, as covenants uh, among the deacons and the pastors that there's a covenant relationship that we have with one another. Also, uh, when you look at Grace Point, there's, there's a covenant that we all sign as, as you become members of Grace Point Church. And those of you who are members know this form hopefully very well. Hopefully you prayed it through, you thought it through, you thought about it, you prayed about it. That, that you will together, this is what the covenant says, that you will together with Grace Point Church regularly share in the exaltation of Jesus Christ with my church through worship, through prayer, through personal growth and holiness. Also, that we will regularly stand for the core beliefs, the unity of my church by studying and defending the doctrines we believe, by supporting the pastors and leaders, by speaking and acting in love toward the members. Also, that we would regularly serve in the growth of my church by sharing Christ's way of salvation with unbelievers, by helping to develop others of the faith or in the faith by participating in world missions. And also that we would regularly support the ministry of our church through gracious and generous giving, through personal service and faithful attendance. This is just a covenant commitment that we make with one another. Again, one of those things that if you go through our new members class, you learn about that kind of stuff and you learn the value that we place on that. And we think that there's nothing in there that is not biblical, that God is not already asking of us, that we can already commit to as followers of Jesus Christ. So what we do is we come together and we say, okay, together we are going to do this. We are going to hold each other accountable to this. We're going to encourage each other in this. We're going to pray for one another in this. And we're going to enter into this relationship that is a covenant relationship. And when you talk about covenants beyond, I was one of the things that I really appreciate our former governor doing was instituting covenant marriages and the value of those. And again, I don't know where BB stands on that or where it is today in the whole bureaucratic process, but I've encouraged a number of couples who would come to me for premarital counseling to consider covenant marriage because it just takes the marriage. When you get in there and you understand the value of it, you takes it to a totally new level and a new uh, commitment level as well. Covenants, covenants, covenants. What's the big deal about covenants? How is that different than contracts? How's, well, what is the covenant all about? You know, God has been entering into covenants since the beginning of time. We have the Old Testament to begin with. The Old Covenant. It's literally what the Testament is. It's the Old Covenant. And in that covenant, we see how there are covenants between God and man. You see covenant between Moses and God. You see a covenant between Abram and God. You see covenant relationships taking place there. You also see in Scripture covenant relationships between man and man, where Jonathan and David had a covenant relationship. You see covenant marriages, again, modeled in Scripture. Covenants, though, over the course of time, have kind of faded, faded away kind of in the, in, in the early Constantine period when church became a legal thing and you, it was the 
it was the, the thing to do to be a part of a church. And from Constantine forward, covenants kind of slid off the center of the table and kind of became just kind of something you were born into. When you're talking about being a part of a church, you were born into, a, into the church. You were born Catholic. You were baptized as a baby. You, whatever it was that uh, you were a part of, that's kind of just, it was a birthright almost, that you were just a part of that. Well, it wasn't until the 15th, 16th, 17th century when the reformists came back and they said, no, 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 it's not something you're born into. Again, it's a covenant commitment that you make and you're a part of a family and you're part of a community and we make this commitment together. Well, then rolls in the 20th century, late 19th century, 20th century in the modern day era as some call it. And it really what it welcomed into is a, a, a sickness that has pervaded our culture still to this day. It's called commitment phobia. Well, we have a hard time making commitments and making them last. It's a convenience thing. It's a, it's a what's in it for me thing. It's a, one of those things that, that we can quickly jump ship and move on to something else if we're not careful. Because we have commitment phobia. It's resulted in a church dating. Literally a phrase that I picked up in my readings is that people are really moving from church commitment, church membership, church covenants to church dating where they may try this church out for a while. Or they, they love the children's program over here, but the youth programs may be lacking over here. So they'll try different churches and they just date and they hop from place to place. Church dating versus church covenants. I like the way Eric Bryant said it. He said, unfortunately, membership in a local church sometimes feels like joining the gym. You start going for a few weeks and then stop when you get too busy. I'm afraid that that's what membership looks like in a lot of areas. But what does it mean to be a part of a covenant? A covenant relationship that... I have one of these, and every member that's signed has ever named Grace Point Church as their home has committed to a covenant. What does this mean? Why would we want to bring this archaic kind of form of commitment back? Because I think it's more biblical than a contract form. If you think about a contract, a contract says that I'm looking out for my interest. If you don't watch out, I'll sue you. Covenants say I'm looking out for others' interest and we will serve one another. Totally different perspective when you start looking at what a covenant versus what a contract is. When Jesus came and died, He came and died looking out for our interest. And in that, He said, I am establishing a new covenant. There's a covenant relationship that's far different than a contract. A contract also will serve self. A covenant serves others. If you take your Bibles today, find the book of Matthew. First Gospel book you will find in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 26. And again, the New Testament, the New Covenant. God has been about establishing covenants. He's been about honoring His covenants all the way through. And the covenants are always, as you notice, God initiating a relationship with man. He did it with Abram. He He does it through Jesus. And every time, it's God not looking out for His own interest. It's God initiating a relationship with us. And so what kind of a relationship do we have with Him? Is it more of a contract? God, if you'll do what I say, when I say, when I want, then then I will follow you. If you'll answer my prayer, God, then I will do this for you. That's That's a contract. Are we in a covenant relationship? Lord, I am looking out for Your interest. I'm looking out for Your name. I'm looking out for Your glory, God. And I want Your glory 
to be known throughout the earth. What are we about? Are we about ourselves or whatever? So you come to the book of Matthew chapter 26 and you find here the, this institution of a, of a new covenant. And Jesus is with His disciples early on and as He's with them, not, excuse me, not early on, but late on in, in His ministry, as literally he is, he is hours, He is minutes away from going to the cross. And as He's minutes away from, from suffering for us, He tells them we need to celebrate the Passover. But in the midst of celebrating the Passover, Jesus does a switcheroo, if you call it that. Where we're going into the Passover dinner, which is a celebration, again, of a covenant relationship that God established with Moses and the people of Israel that would deliver them from Egyptian bondage. And they had been celebrating it from that day until, the, until this day, on Jesus' day. He says, okay, this is, the, this is the, the celebration and we're going to remember this old covenant. But then he does this switcheroo and he starts talking about a new covenant. A new covenant that's going to be sealed and symbolized and established in his body and in his blood. A sealing of that covenant, a symbolizing of that covenant would be, would be what would ha- happen. And in verse 26 of Matthew 26, this is what it says. It says, And now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, He broke it and gave to His disciples and said, Take eat. This is My body. And He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is My blood, and listen to this next statement, of the covenant, or the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, if you remember back, before I read the next verse, if you remember back to Jesus, or you remember back to the Old Testament, that first or that covenant with Moses to deliver the people of Israel that established the Passover dinner, it was, a, it, was a, it was to mark the freedom from slavery. Israel's freedom from slavery. Jesus, fast forward to the New Testament, the New Covenant. There's a celebration of a new covenant that's established. And it's not the Egyptian, excuse me, it's not the Israelites' freedom from Egyptian bondage and slavery. It's the freedom of all mankind from the slavery of sin. Poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new, with, uh, excuse me, uh, drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. There are two elements that come to this table, that we come to the table today. That if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you are, you have already committed your life to Christ, or today you commit your life to following Christ, then we invite you to join us at four tables, back in this corner, here, here, and then back in that corner. In a few moments when we celebrate the two elements, the very elements that Jesus spoke of, the bread and the cup. And as you think about the bread and the cup, what do they mean? Because He says, this is My body, take it and eat it. And then He says, take this cup and, and, and drink it because it is My blood. Now, again, this is probably a little bit of a morbid thought when you think about drinking blood. We don't believe in transubstantiation, which is just a $5 word to say that you're literally drinking God's flesh in your, or eating God's flesh and drinking His blood. That it's going through some kind of metamorphic state inside of us. 
This is a symbol that we look at and we remember and we reflect upon. But what does the bread mean? Here's just a couple of things. The bread means the life lived for our example. He said, take the bread and eat it. It is my flesh. And you are, you are, you are literally remembering me and my flesh. Now, what was the life of Christ like? Again, how can I in one swooping passage of Scripture cover the life of Christ? I mean, good night. The entire four Gospels are all about the life of Christ. And, and then when you look at Acts, you see the Acts of, of God's Spirit moving across the people and the messages of, of the people of Israel, uh, excuse me, these early believers and how they keep pointing back to the life of Christ. And so there's is there one passage, and I thought Philippians chapter 2, I think, encapsulates, I think, the, the passage that speaks to the life of Christ. And His, his life lived for us as an example for, for us to follow. And, and in verse uh, chapter 2 of Philippians, verse 5, it says this, Have this mind among yourself, which, was, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But made Himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You get you can't skip that first phrase. Have this mind among yourselves, which Christ also had. So the question today is, how much does my life reflect the life of Christ? How much do my words sound like the words of Christ? How much are my hands involved in the in the work of Christ? How much are my feet? How often are my feet traveling the path of Christ? If I could encourage you when we come to the table in a few moments is to just take a little piece of bread here and, and before you consume it and reflect, to take just a second and, and reflect on it and to think about the life of Christ, the humility of Christ, the suffering of Christ, the example of Christ, the love of Christ, the compassion of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, the attitude of Christ, the humility of Christ so much there that you can reflect on when you think about Christ as an example to live. Hold it. And as you take it, prayerfully consume it, saying, God, I want You throughout me. I want to reflect You. I want people when they see me to see You. I want to live like You, believe like You, walk like You, have the attitude, the same mind as You. The bread speaks to a life lived for our example. The cup speaks to the blood shed for our sins. Again in verse 27, He says, And He took the cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Going early on in ministry, I can remember 
coming to the Lord's Supper. And the, the young, little church, about 30 people on a good day would be there. And First Baptist Church, Morrisville, Missouri. And, and, and I remember right off the bat they said, you know, Mike, we haven't celebrated the Lord's Supper since our last pastor was here, which I don't know how long that was. It had been a long time. And they said, we need to celebrate the Lord's Supper, so would you lead us in this? I didn't have that class yet. I hadn't had that class yet. I didn't know what to do. I was very nervous. I was afraid that there was something that I might do that would just like offend God and He'd zap me from heaven and, or something like that. You know, I, where do you get the grape juice? So, you know, is, it, uh, you know, is there some kind of holy vendor out there that has uh, grape juice from the Holy Lands or something like that? And when I found out, you know, great value will work fine uh, for, for your Lord's Supper communion. And, and it's not so much the juice. That's what the juice represents. And how it symbolizes something that happens in our life that transforms us. In Africa, there was no grape juice. And so we literally trying to counsel the early church, those churches there in, in Africa to try to, to, try to develop, how, how do you celebrate the Lord's? We just use Kool-Aid. We would speak of it as being symbols of Christ's blood. But one thing you cannot symbolize away or some, one thing you can't just excuse off is that it absolutely takes the blood of Christ to set us free. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, Under the law almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. So we come to a time right now where I want to challenge you to think for a moment about your life. How much does my life emulate and reflect the life of Christ? Then I also want you to think about the blood of Christ. And as you take a cup and you hold the cup in your hand, I want you to just reflect on the life of Christ and the blood of Him. Because without the shedding of blood... The Bible says there's no forgiveness of sin. There's time for silence and reflection. I want to ask you a few questions if you'll just bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to read a verse to you. Then I'll ask you the questions. When Paul is instructing the church at Corinth on the matter of communion or the Lord's Supper, he said this in 1 Corinthians 11.28. He said, but a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. But he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Are you in a relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you know Him as your Lord and Savior? Lord meaning boss, meaning owner. Another question would be, are you in any way harboring sin in your heart? Any way 
that you are not living in a full-on, sold-out, all the skeletons out of the closet relationship with Jesus Christ. The last question would be, have you done everything you can do to be living a reconciled life with those around you? The Bible points out in Matthew 5.24 that if you come to bring your offerings in worship, that you realize your brother has something against you to leave your offerings and to be reconciled. Are you living a reconciled life? the same passage of Scripture that we read a few moments ago, Matthew chapter 26, I think it's most appropriate that I point out the context is right where the new covenant is established, that would be lived out in the church, that we would celebrate since the time of Christ to this day, this new covenant in a form just like this. But no more than the celebration of the very first communion, Lord's Supper, is taken. And the very next movement among the disciples in Jesus was to get up and leave the room. And to go to Jesus' favorite place, the Garden of Gethsemane. Which literally means olive press. Gethsemane means olive press because there's just a grove of olive trees there. I've been able to set, climb up. They're, they're, they're kind of strangly kind of trees and to be able to lean and to set into those trees myself and to think that maybe I'm setting in the similar tree that Jesus wept at. In the same garden for sure. But Jesus turns and, and, and He says this, or the story continues to unfold in verse 36. And Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Every time you see the word pray, underscore that if you would. And taking with him Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain and watch with me. Now, that's another word to underscore, to make note of. Watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder how many times you say, God, is there any other way? Is there any other path? Is there any other direction? Is there any other course? 
Is there any other way that I don't have to suffer what I'm about to suffer? He says, but nevertheless, God, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. I think about Peter and on that day, all the stories and all the courage of getting out of the boat that Peter had, all the desires to to defeat the enemy, all the times that he stuck his foot in his mouth, but yet he was doing it with boldness. It's like God says, man, you really want to. You really, really want to follow me. But I also know your flesh. Your flesh is weak. And again, the second time he went away and he prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And he came to his disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See that the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. The life of Christ, marked by betrayal, marked by great agony for us, establishing that new covenant, consummating that covenant. In fact, here's a life principle here. The consummation of the covenant is a call to prayer because it's a call to war. This beginning of this new covenant, I mean, it was coming down to the cross. It was the pinnacle. It was the crescendo of the musical in the life of Christ. And He's coming to the end and, and He's establishing this new covenant. And he's symbolizing it with His flesh and His blood. And He's calling His disciples out. And this consummation of, of this covenant is a call to prayer. The very first act that, that Christ does following the beginning of the Lord's Supper is to pray. Because here's what happens when you take this meal. 1 Corinthians 11.26 says, that for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. You are celebrating and you are proclaiming Christ Jesus as, as Lord of all when you take this cup. Since July, we have been in a study of, on the church as a community, a church in the community, as a church, why do you bother with the church? And I think we come to, to the close of this series of messages, and we look to next week in a totally different series, but in preparing for this, I thought, my, oh my, what a, 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 a segue, what a, what a connecting point that as Jesus consummates the church in the covenant community that He does, bound together with that, that common interest in others, not your common interest in yourself, that interest in others, that commitment to others, that He turns right around and He, he bathes in prayer. He saturates the next move in prayer because the next move 
is the head-on-head encounter with the devil. The betrayal that he will experience. The suffering that he will experience. And so what does Jesus do? He says, listen, if we're going to talk about a new community, we're going to talk about a covenant, we're going to talk about this kind of relationship. Let me just tell you, Peter, and I, again, I know their, their bellies are full. It's been a full day, whatever. They're tired. It's sleeping time. But there are times that we don't sleep and that we rise up and we watch and we pray. We watch and we pray. And he calls out his disciples here and he says, listen, we must watch and pray or you, my friends, will find yourself headlong in temptation. The kind of temptation that will suck the life out of you, that will suck your devotion out of you, watching that alert state of mind, that, that awareness of what's going on. And we enter in next week into a new series called The Adversary that will call us to look and to watch and to learn. Ian Bounds says it like this, without prayer the Gospel can neither be preached effectively, proclaimed faithfully, experienced in the heart, nor practiced in the life. We must learn the value of watching and praying. Hey guys, if I can just kind of close today with a call for everybody in this room to watch and pray. To become alert and to, and to take off the scales of blindness that Satan so easily does to us. He literally blinds us from the truth. And we'll talk about that starting next week. That if we can learn to watch, that means to see, that means to be alert, that means to be able to identify, that means to be able to call out when it's time to call out the darkness around us and in us. That if we could have that kind of alertness, and then if we would couple that with the prayer element, that we would watch and we would pray, that maybe we would have greater victory in our life from the flesh and from the temptations that so easily entangle us. Because our will may be strong, but our flesh is extremely weak. And if you think about the life of Peter, you know, here he is. He's the bold guy. He's the guy saying, I'm not going to deny you. And in verse 30, Jesus in through 35, he says, no, you will deny me three times before the cock crows. And isn't it interesting that it took three times, Jesus woke them up three times from their slumber when they should have been watching and praying. Three times. He calls them to, to pray. Three times he says, pray, pray, watch and pray. Three times. Yet, they slept on. How many times again did Peter deny him? Three times. Within a few short hours. He should have been praying, but he was denying. He was weak. His spirit wasn't what it should have been. He was weak in the spirit. The interesting thing as you go on through Peter's life is God is so redemptive. He, he enables to bring us back whenever we fall. And the interesting thing is, is that later on in Peter's writings, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says this, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Isn't it interesting that Peter uses one of the same words that Jesus used? Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
My challenge to you today is to get to know the adversary. Not in some kind of exploratory way, but to watch and to learn his ways. But not just simply to watch and to learn the ways of, 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 of the devil and the adversary, but to realize that he is prowling, he is stalking, he is after you. And you can live victorious, and your will may say, I want to live victorious. But I'll tell you right now, your flesh is sucking you in, and it's sucking me in as surely as we live. We're going to take a time of prayer. And we're going to spend pretty much the remainder of our worship time in prayer. We have around the room several stations that you can go to, that you can pray at. You can pray in your seats. You can come pray across the front of the church. You don't, you don't have to move. You can stay where you're at, but you're free to move about. And here's a couple of areas that I want you to think about in prayer for, for, for what's going on. The first station here are the stations of the cross. The cross represents yourself because I think before you can really have victory in life, you must have victory through the cross. And you might need to come and spend a, a second, a, a couple of minutes maybe right here and just laying yourself before the cross. There's even some three-by-five cards down there. If you want to write your prayer to God, you can leave it at the cross. There's a basket. You go to this table over here. That represents the Grace Point family. Those who are teaching our children right now will be teaching throughout the series. We must pray for one another. I need you to pray for me. I've called you out to that several weeks. Have you been doing that? I need it. This band needs prayer. We need protection. Our staff needs prayer and protection. Our leadership needs prayer and protection. We must pray for one another. Would you take time to pray for our leadership? The far side over here, you'll find a couch and a chair that represents your family. We all have them in our house. Maybe your family right now is struggling with something. But you feel like you cannot get past it whatever that something is. It has captured you. It's, it has entangled your family. It's pulling your family apart. Your family needs deliverance, if you, if you will. You might need to take your family and just pray at the couch. Kneel at the couch. This represents a coffee shop. The front porch of America has become uh, coffee shops. Uh, and so, as you come to this section right here, you all myself included, have friends and family who if I were to ask you the question right now, who do you know that is under attack? That is under the influence? Maybe not possessed. I don't go that far. But under the influence and making some really stupid decisions. And they are having a stronghold of Satan that is capturing their life. My friends, I ask us all that we would pray for our friends and our family. Watch and pray lest we enter into temptation. The rest of our service is about interceding for one another. So you're free.